I tell these things to our sales team. I tell these things to our other team. Like, listen, sure. I have triggered. If you do this, I'm going to slow down on you. If you do this, I'm going to accelerate. From policy advocacy to crisis management to M&A, GCs have the opportunity to be part of important transformative events in a company's journey. On today's episode of The Abstract, we'll talk about one significant aspect of the in-house legal role, financing and mergers and acquisitions. We'll delve into this theme through a few different lenses, including working under private equity ownership, getting acquired by a public conglomerate, and adapting to the changing responsibilities and reporting structures that come along with all of that. I have the pleasure of being joined today by Brian Chase, the General Counsel of Service Channel, for a candid conversation around what goes into these transactions and how to work within the changes that come after them both in terms of the company and his own career. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So before we get into kind of the the nitty gritty of your experiences, tell us a little bit about what Service Channel does and how some of the ownership structures have changed over the course of the past five, six, seven years that you've been there. Yeah. So I've been at Service Channel for seven years. Service Channel is a facilities maintenance software company. That's primarily our business is we provide a SaaS platform that allows companies to manage their contractor and internal technician workforce. We also offer professional services to help them when they don't have the internal resources to do so. So if they don't have a facility manager, we can provide somebody on the outside to help pull the levers and, and, and help do the work. It's been an exciting company. The ownership structure is an interesting question. When I joined Service Channel, Service Channel has been around for quite a while, since 1999. It was founder run until 2014. In 2014, it was purchased by a private equity group. The private equity group came in. They actually placed their own CFO, CEO, board members. And I joined in 2016 under that structure. So it was run like a private equity run run tech company. A few years after that, we did raise a, a new round with some encouragement from me. I recommended that we should look into the venture realm for some venture back money, mm-hmm. uh, partially because that's where a lot of my experience has been. In when I w- worked for Gunderson Detmer, I represented a lot of venture companies. When I was general counsel of Foursquare, we also had a primarily venture back board, so I was much more comfortable with the venture backed type structure. So we got a great investor in Excel. had had a couple of their partners come join board as board members. It definitely changed the dynamic of the board. And I think led to the led to the to the eventual outcome with service channel being acquired in 2021 by Fortiv, and this is a whole new world. Fortiv is a publicly traded company. It is a holding company that has a lot, and I always forget the number. I think it might be 19 <laughs> operating companies underneath it that span a broad range of different companies. We are part of what's called the interactive operating system. Network, we're the, we're the software companies. They have a lot of hardware companies. We're the software companies. And it's been a different ride being part of a, a public organization. We're going to talk about some of those transitions and how you've managed to you know, find interesting roles all through those transitions in just a second. Tell us a little bit about you recommending seeking out venture dollars. How did that conversation go? I mean, you think oftentimes of the CFO or the CEO or board members advising on that sort of thing, and, and maybe the GC doing more of the transaction, but you were, it was really your idea to go out and pursue a different type of investment. So I have been very fortunate in my 
in-house positions to to be much more than just the legal advisor mm-hmm. to be able to work closely with the management team i worked very closely with the ceo and the cfo we communicated quite often on things that were way, way beyond just the you know what's the legal question sure. uh, and so in those conversations that came up the company actually was in a place where it didn't necessarily need money it was just one of those situations where there was interest. And as they say in the private company space a lot, if there's money available, take it. <laughs> and so as we were talking about things and I threw that out, I said, hey, it might be good to to bring in some different viewpoints. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't really even a hard battle, I think, partially because the venture firms that we were looking at were all well-respected and a pretty easy, an easy decision. And so when the process went, it went pretty quickly. With every one of those funding rounds or, or acquisitions has come, you know, a little shift, I'd imagine, in how things are run at the company, the outlook, the sort of goals the executive team is pursuing, even maybe some turnover in the leadership team itself. You stuck around through through those changes. Tell us a little bit about how your role evolved and, and how you found a place in each of the sort of subsequent executive teams. So... That's a great question. Uh, as I said, when I first joined, it was it was new for all of us to have a legal person on the team. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was the first legal legal hire at Service Channel in 2016, and fortunately, I had come from an opportunity at Foursquare where I had been involved in a lot of extra things. I started as employee 31 there, and I think some of those experiences gave me opportunities to have a lot more experiences. One surprise that I got within my first week of being hired was that during my interview process, they had mentioned, hey, great news. We just hired a head of HR. I learned when I joined that they didn't have a head of HR, that that person had actually declined in the in the t- period between those two conversations. And they asked me to take over HR responsibilities. So pretty quick off, I was not only just general counsel, I was also head of HR. Fortunately, there were great individuals there. We, we were using a PEO at the time to help carry a lot of things because I'm not an HR professional by, by training. So it was good to have that as well as some great internal team members who assisted. But I guess because of my Foursquare days, I was so opinionated about different other things that I got involved. And, and when there weren't people to fit a role, I was more willing to sit in a role. So when there wasn't somebody to, to run sales ops, I helped with sales ops. When we learned that there was no lease management group, I helped with lease management. And mm-hmm. you know, so I would say when I started, I had a lot of those responsibilities. And that actually stayed pretty much the same for most of the time. Over time, we did, as the company moved out to California and as we hired new uh, executives, I hired a head of HR who reported to me for a while before I before she was moved under the CEO. A bit by bit, those responsibilities kind of went away. And I think the interesting one was when Service Channel was acquired by Fortiv, there was a, I would say, perhaps lack of communication on both sides about what my role was going to be. You know, the, there were a lot of responsibilities that I had as a private company, general counsel, that were no longer under my purview. Mm-hmm. And I fell into a kind of rut where I, I would say I, I stopped being a general counsel and became more of a VP of legal. Sure. And when and when I say the nuance there, I think a VP of legal as I only responded on legal questions. I'd sit in 
in leadership meetings and I'd say, oh, from a legal perspective, which is really weird because I used to argue that I never would do that. And it was probably about six or seven months where I was unhappy because my job was strictly only legal. Sure. And come to find out that our president at that time was also unhappy because I was only being strictly legal. <laughs> and fortunately, in a, in a mid-cycle review, he brought that up. He said, you know, I thought you were a general counsel and, and kind of woke me up. Uh -huh. And it gave me not only the opportunity to let him know what I wanted to do and the things I wanted to be involved in, but also gave him the opportunity to give me more avenues. And so I am participating a lot more broadly in a lot of things that aren't even closely related. Well, I guess everything's related to legal. In a way. <laughs> but you know, I, I help support the finance team. I help support the product team. I help support the marketing team from, I would say, professional experiences more than just legal experiences. Sure. So is the lesson really there for folks who maybe going through a transition, whether they're being acquired or the company is going public and they're not exactly sure about will their job be around afterwards or will it look the same? Will they still like it? Is the lesson there really communicate or, or over communicate, kind of be candid? Yes, exactly. That is something I wish I had done. It's one of those things we have to remember is that we are valuable members of, of the company. As part of an acquisition, we help them through the acquisition. We know stuff that it's going to take them a long time to learn. Mm -hmm. Whether or not the acquirer see you as a long-term hire versus a short-term hire, you shouldn't have the fears I had that it was going to affect your career. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it would have helped. Yeah, it would have definitely helped me if I had just been a little bit more open about my concerns, about my desires. It would have gotten me ahead of the curve. So yeah, I definitely agree with that. Tell us a little bit about what it's like to, to work as a part of a, a holding company that has its own legal team. Because I think it's kind of an interesting structure that you're under. What does that look like and, and what has it been like so far? So that one took me quite a while to get my head around. And I've actually learned recently that they've tried different structures in the past. Hmm. So I do not report to Fortive's general counsel. I report to the president of Service Channel. Hmm. But I do have a dotted line. I guess, reporting requirements up to mm -hmm. Fortive. So when it comes to quarterly and annual reporting, there's certain reporting that I need to do. I do report that to the Fortive group. I do have regular contact. We have what is referred to as a segment level general counsel. I do meet with her on a regular basis, but that's more for me to be a sounding board Mm -hmm. for me to find out maybe there's a more efficient way to do something within the company. And there are different resources that are shared. So we have labor employment has a great team of labor employment lawyers that I'm able to go to. So I don't need to go to outside counsel. We have a privacy and information governance group, a mm -hmm. compliance group that all sit in the Fortive level that allow us to use them as a first place to go to before we have to seek outside counsel. And then beyond that, there are all the general counsels at the other entities. And I would say I stay in contact with at least one of them each week. We reach out to each other for advice for, hey, what's the standard work that's been done in this area? And so it's kind of like our own little network of a yeah. legal team. And it kind of also gives you that opportunity for those legal jokes where, oh my gosh, can you believe this happened? Which is <laughs> us as lawyers, 
but that none of our other business colleagues understand. So it, it gives us that little network as well. I like that. A lot of GCs today, whether they've got a slightly bigger team or they're like you operating, you know, maybe with a smaller group, but even within a, a larger org, or they want to expand beyond legal, take on other sort of executive roles or, or functions. You talked about HR for a minute and you say today you're still pretty deeply involved in product finance. How did you build the sort of internal credibility or position yourself to take on some of those other functions or some of that other work? Did it just start with a small project and, and build from there? What did that look like? So I've always been interested about multiple aspects of the company. Mm-hmm. And I started, at least here at Service Channel, it was by asking the the leaders of those teams whether or not I could sit in on some meetings. Mm-hmm. Uh, some were more hesitant than others to have the lawyer come into the room. Sure. But I would promise, hey, I'll, I won't say anything that will that should cause issues. And I don't think they did. And so it gave me an opportunity <laughs> to go in. I use it as a learning thing. You know, hmm. my my general practice to come when I come into a new company is to take about three months as a learning experience. Obviously, there's got to be a little bit of the work, but I try not to make drastic changes in those three months of, of my behavior or the company's behaviors. And so I was able to use that as a learning opportunity. And I think by doing that and building the rapport with the team, they could see that, hey, wait, he he does have an opinion about this and it may be a good opinion or it at Mm -hmm. least causes us to think. And I think I'm also quite responsive. So when people have questions for me, I'm really responsive back. So they realize that I was somebody they could trust that they could reach out to. Mm -hmm. I recently did a a survey, one of those, I think it's called the, now I'm going to forget the name of it. We read a book for one of our leadership conferences and yeah, so I'm just going to blank, but I learned during this thing that one of my, one of my um, strengths is I'm a connector. And when Mm -hmm. I say as a connector, it's not necessarily that I'm not a networker, but I'm a person who likes to grab different buckets of, of things, of knowledge of like, Mm -hmm. who knows this, who knows that? And so people will come to me more often than I like, they'll come to me and ask questions. Hey, where's this in the travel policy? It's like, okay, well, I'm not the right one, but let me send you here. Or, hey, tell me where this data is held. Well, I'm not the right one. <laughs> so I'm really good at being like the, the switchboard, but that strength has helped build that rapport with everybody knowing, hey, well, we can go to Brian, we can trust Brian. And mm-hmm. that's giving me opportunities where maybe I don't know. I'm like, hey, that's not something I know, but I'm really interested to learn it with you. And so I can jump in and participate. That's great. And for those who are listening, we will get the book from Brian. If he's able to remember it, we can put it in the in the show notes after the fact. That actually, it reminds me of a pretty great quote that I heard once. I was reading a book called How Google Works. Jonathan Rosenberg, who was sort of Eric Schmidt's right-hand man for many years there. He's got this great quote or story, I suppose, where uh, he's talking to an engineer and an engineer starts to get angry and, and you know he's pretty highly paid and influential in the business. And he's like, you're, you're, you're just a very expensive router. He sort of sat back and thought for a second. He's like, yes, that's exactly what I am. <laughs> okay, so I did look do a quick look at my notes. So it was called the standout assessment. The standout is, assessment. Uh, and tell us tell us a little bit about that, because it seems like it may have been kind of impactful for you in how you go about your day-to-day today. Yeah, so it was an assessment where they believe that they are asking the types of questions and fast enough that you have to respond enough that you're not allowed to game the system. 
that by answering these questions at the speed that you have to, that they can find out what your strengths are. They refer to them as your superpowers. And mm-hmm. you usually get one or two. The strength roles are, they. I, I'm not going to go through and explain the whole standout roles, but there's sure. equalizer, connector, pioneer, provider. So there's all these types of things. And they let you know which one you are the highest and then the second one. And then based on the, that, they analyze like, hey, if you use these strengths, you'll be successful. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about it is that almost everybody who took the test and read it said, this is wrong. Like, this is completely not me. Mm-hmm. And then with me, I showed it to my wife and she's like, oh, this is 100% you. And that's like, <laughs> so every, like almost everyone I talked to, they're like, no, no, this isn't me. And then when you ex- they explain what they their results were, like, no, that's you. So it's kind <laughs> of funny that we have strengths and we don't necessarily recognize them. Yeah. I, I follow up there. It's interesting, I think, you know, to to realize those things about ourselves. Has it changed the way that you practice uh, or like the way that you go about your day-to-day role? Are you leaning more into those strengths? Or I guess sort of the converse of that is, are there things that you're maybe handing off more to others these days so that way you can focus on what you think your your strengths are? So I think so. I It's interesting because I actually have a colleague who had the same results as I did. Mm-hmm. And she said, I always feared that I was lazy because I was always passing stuff off. Whereas now huh. we recognize, actually, no, we were being efficient because we actually didn't know the answer. It made more mm-hmm. sense to make the connection than for us to play telephone and go through the middle. I don't remember the test. Again, I've taken a bunch of management tests over the years, but I've learned little quirks about myself. For example, I'm the type of personality that if I don't want to do a project, I'll mm-hmm. do it. I'll just do it last. Like, so when any new project comes in, I like push it. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and I share this with my team members. I share this with my team. I share this with my, my leadership. And that way they can check me on it. Like they, you know, they know, yeah. like, Brian, we know you don't want to do this. We need to prioritize it. And it we really so they, need you to anyways. <laughs> but then other things, like I have certain triggers. If you ever send to me something that says, which I know isn't true, clients waiting today, or this, you know, like short times, like if you play the, if you cry wolf to me, sure. Like I'm going to put you down again, same thing. I put you down my list. I'm going to get to you within my SLAs, yeah. but <laughs> where, but there's certain individuals in my, in our sales team, for example, who figured me out on this. And they're the ones who just sent me an email that says, Hey, can you take a look at this whenever you have a chance? for some reason that whenever you have a chance it always jumps to the top because i push everything down and yeah so like and i tell these things to our sales team i tell these things to our other teams like listen i have triggers if you do this i'm going to slow down on you if you do this i'm going to accelerate and i think that's definitely helped people work with me some people Mm -hmm. ignore it and i just i was just thinking just an hour or so ago that somebody did something and i'm like you know that shuts me down like why why would you do that so but i think it's good take these tests be honest with your colleagues share them with them don't keep it in Mm -hmm. and and be honest with yourself that hey this is how i operate and it can help improve one your productivity but also how people work with you and maybe a lesson for sales teams everywhere or product managers looking for privacy review of their features when it's always urgent <laughs> you may undermine your credibility and actually get a slower response <laughs> that's funny. well don't send the hey we need to turn this around today with the 
like email chain below that shows that you've had it for four weeks. Like never. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to talk a little bit about your time at Foursquare before you joined okay. Service Channel. I actually spent a few formative years at Foursquare myself. Unfortunately, we did not overlap, but I worked with another amazing chief legal officer, Mark Ellenbogen there. You set us up for a lot of a lot of great growth because you were one of the early employees. You were around, there for around six years as GC. I would notice for those who are counting, Brian spent six years at Foursquare and seven years now at Service Channel. So whoever's lucky enough to hire him in his next gig knows that they'll probably have him for the long haul. <laughs> what was it like being employee number 31 there, being at such a fast growing startup and being in so early? So fun. Probably <laughs> probably the some of the hardest I've ever worked, but some of the most fun. When you're employee 31, you're not just your role. Everyone mm -hmm. had other roles. I jokingly say I was the guy who was fixing the printer, but literally I was the guy who had to fix the printer. <laughs> I, asked, I asked about posting our privacy policy in terms of use and, and I was told, hey, we don't have time for it. Go learn how to code. So I had to learn how to code my own, own web pages. Wow. Fortunately, they, they, they were always really ugly. So at least they'd give me the time to, to like make it more pretty. <laughs> than what I did, but like whenever there was a privacy policy or terms of view change, I'd have to go in and try to remember how to, to code HTML. Whenever there were meetings about, hey, we need to talk about new product things, mm -hmm. everybody came in. It wasn't just the engineer and the product teams. Everybody did everything, but it was nuts. And and we were we were in a space and in a lens that was so scrutinized, but it was so exciting that, uh, yeah, it was a really fun time. I do joke that, you know, part of the reason that I was hired was because of the scrutiny on the location services. Sure. I joke that one of the benefits of moving to service channels, the FTC stopped calling my cell phone. Not, not a complete joke. Like, fortunately, I, uh, through the years, I got a good relationship with the staff at the FTC, where uh -huh. they knew that Service Channel, not Service Channel, Foursquare had their customers in mind, their users mm -hmm. in mind when it came to privacy. And so when there was a question that came up, there was a lot of incorrect things that got would get posted in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, et cetera, which would obviously raise the concerns of the FTC. But we got to the point where the FTC could call me and say, hey, Brian, mm -hmm. what's going on? And we could explain. And then, unfortunately, but that took years to, to get to that point. Sure. Um, so, but yeah, it was, it was, I mean, it was just fun. There, everybody was working so hard. Everybody worked long hours, but we had a great time doing it. I can say from personal experience, because then I was the guy doing privacy many years later at Foursquare, those early decisions or that early work really does matter in terms of setting up a company's reputation in the right way, having the right relationships with stakeholders like regulators just making product decisions or decisions around the deals, right, that you do that may not come up or be scrutinized at the moment in time, but five, 10 years down the road, I might have been the one on the receiving end of, of something that had been done 10 years earlier, right? And having to deal with the sort of crisis that that provokes. So you made my life a little bit easier through your early work there. That's, I'm glad to hear it. And I, and I love the company. And one of the things that people may not know is that I was the one who hired my own replacement, is mm -hmm. that... When it was time for me to leave Foursquare, it wasn't like a, I'm out. It was a, I knew it was time for me to make a switch in my career, but I love the company. I love the people there. And so I agreed to stay on an extra two months and I did the interviewing. So it was kind of weird to like hire your own replacement. 
Sure. Uh, and maybe I did choose an individual who may or may not have the same hairstyle as myself. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'm biased in that. But, uh, yeah, I was very fortunate to be at a company that was so great to me that I wanted to leave in as, as best a place as possible. You alluded it to it for a second, but it actually, I think, is somewhat unusual for a lawyer or a general counsel to be hired that early on or as employee number 31. You often sort of see that maybe employee 81 or 121, and that even is is sometimes early for a business. What was that process like? Were you having to do a bit of educating and advocating to even get hired? Or did they know, like, we want a GC, we need one? So I was outside counsel for Foursquare. So I was uh-huh. involved in their, their Series A financing and then became their primary outside counsel. And I think a lot of it had to do with just the amount of work that we were dealing with. As I ne- noted, there was a lot of scrutiny from the privacy mm-hmm. regulators and newspapers. And I just know it was a lot of distraction for the actual team, which was sure. a very lean team. And they probably did a cost-benefit analysis as well, is that <laughs> we can pay Brian to be here. And that'll be a lot cheaper than us paying Brian at Gunderson. To be the first. Uh, I think that that had a lot to do with it. But it was interesting because it wasn't really an interview because I'd worked with them. I'd I'd been with them the whole time. And Mm -hmm. I was actually down there for a meeting and just went to to lunch with the the COO at the time when he popped Mm -hmm. the question and said, hey, do you want to come work here? I was like, whoa, this is weird. And that's another example sort of in your career of not having to really interview for or go out and search for a job. I think one of the themes across a good number of episodes on on the abstract on the podcast is the importance of your own personal network. Tell us a little bit about that, including the jump to you know a private equity-owned business. Not many folks would think naturally after a company like Foursquare, the next thing is going to a PE-owned company. So just tell us a little bit about how your network has influenced your career. Yeah. So I interviewed for my first job, which was at Tessa Hurwitz and Tebow, a firm in Boston, Massachusetts, which was a great firm that due to the world at the time blew up. And I fortunately was able to jump with a lifeboat to Goodwin Proctor. But I had actually met when I was at, at Tessa Hurwitz and Tebow, a few individuals that threw actually their service group. So an individual who was in the, on the the corporate transaction side, we did a, a lot of public service with youth in the Boston area. Hmm. And he heard rumblings that I wasn't too happy with my move to Goodwin. And so he was the one who introduced me to the technology transactions partner at Gunderson. I had one meeting with him and moved on. And then, mm-hmm. as I said, so then I was at Gunderson. And then at Gunderson, I moved to Foursquare. And then at Foursquare, as I said, I did, I got it got to a point, I'd been there for a while that I was like, hey, it's time for a transition. And I had a mentor who said, hey, I know this company service channel. You want to take the meeting? And the <laughs> meeting was, hey, let's go get breakfast. Went mm-hmm. to breakfast. Like, okay, you want a job? So it's like, okay. So I don't think I've had to uh, dust off my resume for quite a while. <laughs> but I definitely do feel strongly in the networking. When I started at Foursquare, I had the great opportunity to meet a, a wonderful attorney, David Pashman, who at the time was at Meetup. And he and I, he and I started, we were both USV attorneys at the time. And we then met Sarah Feingold and it started to, to grow and grow. And we, we, we started to have with a small group of individuals in New York, we'd have regular lunches, regular dinners. And we then started to like, 
get CLE credit. We started to get people reaching out to us. And one of those individuals is an individual named Kieran Lingham, who is now known as one of the founders of TechGC. Mm-hmm. And Kieran would come to our things. And one day he asks, he just mentions to David and I, who are more of the coordinators, is like, hey, do you mind if I coordinate one of these? We're like, <laughs> sure. Like, go ahead, you can coordinate it. So he coordinated it. And I think there were like 150 people that showed up to it. So we were like, we wow. were like eight or nine. So he's like, yeah, let me coordinate. And he, with the, those skills that he has, took it from that little thing to the great organization that TechGC is now. So it used to be that at the TechGC meetings, I was on the panels every single time because it was small. Yeah. Uh, now I, now I'm, I just get to be a, a lucky participant who, who goes and attends. But I do attend because you never know who you're going to meet, who's going to open the door or who's going to have a relationship that opens the future door. So I, I am definitely a big, big proponent of increasing your network as best you can. This was not scripted. I mean, I was lucky to spend five years helping Kieran and, and Greg in a small way, part-time grow TechGC in LA and through webinars and the listserv. And at SpotDraft, we remain huge supporters and sponsors. And it's fun to be on this side of the table now, getting to host those dinners or attend the conferences. I did not expect that I would get you know the origin story of TechGC from you today. That's very cool to hear. Well, sometimes I would love to see if Kieran agrees with my my assessment. But I, do think, <laughs> I, I, I just it's amazing what he and Greg have been able to do, and just and I would say that the attorneys that it has helped and supported, which also would mean all the amazing mm-hmm. companies that it's it's helped and supported. And whether or not Kieran, if you're watching this, this goes as a plug or not. You know, I don't know if I get any flack <laughs> for this, but I would say if there's if there are some you know GCs out there. Or CFOs because they know that mm-hmm. you know they that's sweet. That, that yeah. Uh, if you're looking for a, a good networking opportunity, I, I'd recommend it. TechGC is it, and they've always got great food and and pretty good wine as well at the dinner. So <laughs> that's very cool. Something else I think that's that's interesting, and this I think I think it's in a similar vein to the idea that you've never really had to we call it go out and get or interview for a job is that you've been sort of a solo GC, both at Foursquare and here, but you've also trained people up who may not be lawyers to work with you and they followed you. Tell us a little bit about that. I think it's, I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. I think, I don't know if it's a good sign or a bad sign. It's probably a bad sign. I apparently (laughs) don't have enough negotiating abilities to get myself more budget. So for all of you who are out, who have been able to build out large legal teams, kudos to you. I always end up in the situation where I'm seen as a cost center and where I start out with the budget at the beginning of the year to get a general counsel or an associate general counsel or a corporate attorney that they then chop it and they have to figure it out. And so when I was at Foursquare, that was the type of situation is that I, I was definitely overwhelmed. And the one, there was just a lot of stuff going on and trademarks and just managing mm-hmm. contracts. And so I went to hire a, a trademark contract, a trademark paralegal with contract management experience. And the story I like to get, I like to share about this is, as I was hiring people, I had a long slate of, of candidates and it was an interesting time. This was 2012. I got for this job role, I got a lot of attorneys who applied for it. It was, it was mm-hmm. really interesting, but my third interview came in. And at the end of the interview, I asked the question, I was like, hey, do you have any final questions for me? And her question was, 
uh, how do you handle constructive criticism from those who report to you? And hmm, that's a good and I question. Knew that, exactly. And I knew at that moment that I was going to end the rest of the, the interview process and offer her a job. We have now worked together for over a decade. And after a month of being at Foursquare, she had all the trademark stuff cleaned up and she had all the contracts organized and said, well, what else can I do? Mm-hmm. And so I said, hey, you interested in learning NDAs? So I taught her how to do NDAs. And then we moved to, I think it was co-promotion agreements and then to license agreements. And now she, I would say she manages 99% of our commercial contracts here. And it goes toe-to-toe with law firm trained or law school trained attorneys all the time. So here at Service Channel, I was looking for somebody to to just help manage with the, the privacy program that we have mm-hmm. and hired a person with that focus. Quickly saw that the, the woman that I hired had a lot more abilities than just tracking paperwork. Sure. And, and she now manages our privacy and compliance program. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've been very lucky that the paralegals that I've hired have wanted to do much more than just the initial jobs. Mm-hmm. And, but I, I feel I've, it's been a great, it's been fun for me as well, though, just to get to, to see these individuals grow and learn. And it teaches me as well, because when you're teaching something, the gaps in your understanding are become very apparent because uh-huh. when they ask a question and you say, I don't know, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> I, I, I don't know everything I think I know. So I think it also improved my abilities and things as well. How do you think about the sort of evolution of the legal profession or who's on legal teams or comprises legal teams with that in mind? I mean, I'm a little biased here in that I'm a non-attorney, non-lawyer, who's worked on a lot of privacy and policy issues in the past. I also see every day in many of our customers, legal operations professionals who are doing pretty incredible, oftentimes very strategic work, supporting chief legal officers or GCs or commercial attorneys who also don't have a JD or Esquire after their name. I think that the JD and that experience going through a firm can be very, very valuable. And and I see a lot of people who are brilliant who have that experience. How do you think about the sort of evolution of how legal departments will be built though going forward? It's a great question. So I am a huge proponent for law school graduates to go to a law firm. Mm -hmm. I feel that my foundational experiences, the foundation that I have from my law firm days has assisted me in becoming the attorney that I am. So I generally would push people and say, hey, don't just go be the first general counsel at a startup, like go get that training. That said, there are individuals who are not law firm trained that will have skill sets that we can use, in particular in the world today where we're using so many different legal tools, different processes. Mm-hmm. There may be those who a legal-minded person won't understand how to use that legal tool or to set up the back end of a of you know of the rules and the workflows and those things, but somebody who is not a lawyer may. Mm-hmm. And and I've been lucky to find individuals who are like that. I hired an individual just this this past winter who I hired to be a vendor compliance associate. So his his role was specifically to to confirm that these contractors and these plumbers, electricians, those who come into our network to be used by our customers, that mm-hmm. they have the proper certificates of insurance, the proper licenses, et cetera. And that was the role I had for him. But what we ended up having a situation where we needed a standard work put together and I didn't have time and my other right. two paralegals didn't have time. And I said, hey, 
we can put this together. And one of the cleanest, most detailed, structured standards work I've ever seen. So now I keep on having him do that. I just gave him everyone <laughs> this morning. Like, because he has this skill set. And yes, he still has to do that other stuff because that's what he's hired for. But had I not hired him, I would have never found this person who is like a standard work machine, like mm -hmm. a, a, a process machine. And so I think you've got to be creative. And there may be people in other groups. You may be working with somebody in sales ops who is a little bit more interested. Maybe they want to help with initial creation of drafts of, of agreements. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could have them do it because you know, initial draft creation doesn't need really a lawyer if you're using your forms. So it, yeah, especially if you're running lean like, like I am, if I find anybody who is interested, they're going to get grabbed. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to find something for them to do. Maybe it's just efficiency. There's also some, there's some creativity in that too, right? Finding, finding folks who want to do the work, who are qualified to do the work, even if it means dispersing it even outside of your own team or department. As we start to wrap up, a couple of last questions for you, Brian. And I appreciate that you're willing to, to take on this first one too. What's a failure that you've experienced that you think a lot of folks are headed for and you would warn them about or tell them to keep an eye out for? So my biggest failure, I would say, was my relationship with board members. While, while I, with management, I've always worked really well and shown my value. I would feel that when I was in the board situation, I would, I would fall back into corporate secretary. So when I look back, and I wouldn't say I regret anything, but still there's great board members that would take my call. I don't think I sh showed them like my full skill set because I think I held back. And yes, of course, like the lawyer isn't out there, the, the management has to do stuff. But you know, I've heard other, you know, other GCs they would go to lunch regularly with like board members. They would mm -hmm. have out of board meeting relationships with them. And, and so I think that's one area where I could have done better. And I think had I done so, I think future opportunities may, <laughs> may be <laughs> more, may be easier. So I think that's probably one. We will be having uh, a guest on later this season who's going to talk all about how to navigate your relationships with boards, even go out and find roles on private or public company boards, what that experience is like. So keep an eye out for that. And if you're, that I guess, like Brian, that one too. that's really funny that that like fits like right in there. Like, yeah. <laughs> and if you're one of Brian's former board members, maybe reach out to him and take him to lunch. <laughs> yes, one last question for you. I think this one's kind of fun. If you could wish into existence, any app or type of software that would solve your biggest problem right now, what would it be? For some reason, the song from the Coca-Cola commercial, where it was singing in harmony, where they're all singing on the hill. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You're not going to do this um, song for us here? <laughs> no, I'm not going to hold hands and dance and sing in harmony, no. But there are a lot of good legal tools out there that do certain things really well. And so, but none of them do it all well hmm. yet. And, and I and my, and my director of legal services, who I've worked with for a decade, we actually, every year we're willing to, and we talk to almost, like we talk to five, six, seven legal tech companies. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, my dream would be that like all the contract <laughs> life cycle <laughs> management companies would just unify themselves. I know obviously that doesn't work. <laughs> 
you have finances and like, you can't just see that. But that would be a, a tool with workflow management, contract mm-hmm. management, and repository management that pugs into an ERM. So like a Salesforce correctly. Like those, sure. would, be my, those would be my... So you're leaving me with some homework, I guess. Go to our product team and and also go to our CEO and ask him to raise some money so so we can help bring some businesses together. <laughs> I have my homework, I guess. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate the time that you took to prep for this with me and to share your stories and insights with all of our listeners. And to all of our listeners out there, Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next time on The Abstract. Thanks for tuning in today. Don't forget to subscribe so you can get notified as soon as we post a new episode. And if you liked this one, I'd really love to hear your thoughts. So please leave a rating or a comment. If you'd like to reach out to me or our guest, our LinkedIn profiles are in the description. See you all next week.